talk from the Gospel of John. And I want to share with you, uh, uh, this is a story that if you've been with us for a while, I shared it with you about three years ago, not necessarily in great detail, but it was the, the story of how I had become a Christian in 1997. I had a, you know, an early 20s conversion. I was uh, not raised in the church. There's nothing wrong with the fact if you were or not, but I just was not. And I, I had a pretty radical conversion, like a, a Sauline conversion, like a Saul Paul kind of thing happened with me. Uh, never had any interest in Christianity never desired to be around the Christian world, but uh, God felt differently and eventually persuaded me, and I would almost say maybe convinced me that uh, that was not the road for my future. And so one of the important things that uh, in my story was the nature of, of friends. It was not necessarily, although I've always kind of had a bend towards argument and reason and, and really delving into fact and wanting proof, um, <clears throat> one of the most compelling things that led me to Jesus was a group of people uh, who loved Jesus who just really started loving me, uh, and they were putting up with my antics and my nonsense. And so in the early days of my faith, I, I really heavily uh, leaned on them. I mean, they were a support network for me as I was just a, a machine gun of questions, constantly had these things that I was asking. And in the truest sense, in our world, we would say they had taken a proactive stance in discipling me. They didn't just want me to know who Jesus was. They, want me to, they wanted me to deeply experience him. And so because of that, this, this great friendship developed. And one evening, um, they, they invited me to go to a, a, a worship service, different than the church we were at. We were plugged into a local church at that time, but they invited me uh, to go to another city, to a friend's church. And I went with them because I, was, I had this kind of insatiable desire to explore Christianity. And I wanted to see what other expressions of worship looked like in a church that I knew would be different than my own. And so we went there. And this particular church was, uh, was really, it was band-led, this, it was kind of packed with creativity, and they played a song that for the, at the first time I had heard it that night, it was kind of moving to me. And this lyrics challenged me to think on a Christian truth that, that radically reshaped uh, my life. If you've been in the church for any time, you will probably be familiar with this hymn. It's about 30-something years old. It's called, They Will Know We Are Christians By Our Love. Any of you, have any of you ever heard that? Maybe some of you had really long hair and sang it around a bonfire in the hippie days, right? That's kind of where that thing originated. You're like, Jesus knows us by our love, right? <clears throat> so that's, that's like the root of that song. But as is good with most worship teams, ours included, uh, they have this unnatural ability to take songs that might sound really dated in one season in life and bring it into the current epoch. And that's exactly what they did. And they did it over this Native American dr- style drum beat. It was really forceful, like powerful. And I'll tell you, that night... Something happened because this idea of, of being known uh, for our love, and I've done a lot of teaching on love, so love does not necessarily always mean you know, mushy, uh, romantic love. That's certainly present in, in the idea of love. But love in Scripture, has uh, it's kind of like a prism, and the way you turn it, it has different facets, right? So this wasn't a, a, a night about you know, loving like romantically. It was a night about really loving others as Jesus had loved us. This was radically new for me. I mean, I'm, I'll tell you... <clears throat> I, I grew up, at least in, most through my teens, in, in Brooklyn, and love was not like the kind of thing that got you respect on the stoop. In fact, what would happen was uh, the, the people in our neighborhood that we most admired were older than us, and we, we really valued like toughness. That was kind of like what my MO in life was. This is a true story. I'll never forget, there was this guy, <clears throat> he lived a block up from us, and I had about 12 really close friends that I kind of hung out with, and uh, we, we admired this guy. His name was Benny, and Benny was like the toughest kid in the neighborhood, and we, we thought, we were fascinated by him, because if you would give Benny $5, $5, okay, which keep in mind, this is, you're a teenager in the 80s, so that's like $255,000 in today's money, <clears throat> so a lot of money for us to put this together. 
If you gave Benny $5, he would light a pack of firecrackers in his hand. And he had like a leather, a leather hand. Like this is the stuff we thought was awesome. And we all wanted to grow up, you know, to be, to be like Benny. That toughness is, is, is what we wanted, you know. And so if this whole, I'm 20 years in pastoring. If this doesn't work out, seven fifty now with inflation, I'll blow up firecrackers on my hands for all of you, right? That is what I knew, okay? And that carried into my 20s. So to hear that I wasn't supposed to be defined by that, but I was supposed to be a person who was known for my love was, was radical. But it started making sense in a very interesting way that night. And I remember leaving that environment and thinking, you know what? That was a great song. <clears throat> but then I realized that it wasn't just a song. It was a song rooted in Scripture. And so what we're studying today, John thirteen thirty four. This is this is where that song comes from. This is where the, one of the main uh, places, anyways. John four also talks about you know us loving because God first loved us. But I think the Gospel of John is a very powerful teaching. And today that's what we're studying. This this verse where Jesus commands us to love one another in the same way that He first loved us. And we're looking at this truth on a day when our culture celebrates Valentine's Day, which is, you know, it's the holiday of love. And, uh, you know, you're going to go home and find out that you should have bought a diamond ring or whatever else. Uh, uh, your husband, a new Lexus, that always comes around. You know, this is, what, this is what, we, uh, what we understand love to be in a lot of ways. And so my hope is today, I'm not saying any of that's wrong, just kind of tongue-in-cheek, obviously. But my hope is that on a day when we are bombarded with messages about what love is supposed to be, that we will at least let God weigh in uh, on, the, on the matter, too. Now, love we could teach on for years, but we'll just look at one passage today. And we read it in context so you could understand uh, the bigger nature of what's going on. And this, this is really what I want to talk about today. This leads me to this first love truth I want to share with you. And it really is, uh, it's rooted in understanding that who God is shapes who we are. This is something I say here a lot. So the command for God's people to be defined by love, right? This is what Jesus is talking about here. The command for God's people to be defined by love is as ancient as God himself. And John 13, 34 is where we read this. Another great verse, as I mentioned, John four nineteen. But this is the one we'll look at today. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, here we learn that love, okay, this is what Jesus is chipping at. Love finds its origin in the nature of God himself. And I want to take just a minute to talk about the word origin because it is a little bit misleading. Uh, it, uh, there is no other word that I could think of to use here. But the reason it's a little misleading is because it implies that when it comes to who God is and what his love is, uh, that there's a starting point with it. And there is a starting point for us. We'll certainly get to that in a moment. But there never was a starting point for God. So to say that God, you know, love originated in God is not entirely correct. Because scripture teaches us that God is preexistent. And what this means is God has always existed. Or if you prefer, looking at this from another angle, there was never a time that God did not exist. So love is, uh, love is not just something that God is or does. We'll talk about this. Love is always, it's never not been, if we understand who, who God is in his nature. This is very important to know. Because love is not just a deed. It's a, it's a heart attitude. It's a, an attribute. It's a characteristic of people or should be anyways, based on who God is. But it's also a, a hard concept for us to fully grasp, this idea of, it, of love you know, never not existing, because everything in our lives has a beginning and an end. So we don't really have a proper reference point to, to connect this truth to. For example, we all have a day that we are born, right? Life starts for us there, at least out of the womb it starts for us. And then we will all have a day where we die. It's just a start and end. Look at this worship service. Uh, it has a start time, 10 o'clock, in case you don't know, 1025 is when most of you show up. But 10 o'clock is when it actually starts, all right? We love you no matter when you get here. But it starts and it ends, right? This day and this month all have a beginning and an end. When you go to work, uh, whether it's, you know, you're on a salary or hourly, there's kind of a start time and an end time. You punch in and you punch out, for lack of a better term. 
Seasons begin and seasons end. Right? You get the point of this. Everything in our lives, everything in our lives, from the most mundane elements to the, to the most uh, significant things, birth and raising kids and that stuff, they all reflect the temporal and finite nature of, of, of our world. Start and stopping. And so it kind of makes sense that when we start talking about these like grandiose ideas in Scripture, we would struggle a little bit in, in how we understand them. And the, the, the end game of the struggling is that we often make them a lot less than what they're supposed to be. It's very important, though, that when, when we talk about love, we understand, we, or at least we basically grasp this for what Jesus is saying in John thirteen thirty four. And simply put, love is one of God's eternal attributes. It isn't just something he does, right? It isn't just something that he is. It isn't just an emotion that he displays. God's selfless, selfless sacrificial, never-ending, perfect love is one of the things that actually makes God God. Okay? There are other attributes of God, but this is the one we'll talk about today. One of the reasons God is God is because God is love. So that's, a, you know, the grandiose thing, right? But in our world, there's, there are these ways that God begins to transpose this so we can understand his love. And God's perfect expectation for what true love is intended to be is first, or was first revealed to us in the teachings of the Old Testament. So in the story of God's people, one of the first things we begin to see with God revealing himself is he's showing us that he's a God of love and he's a God that loves people. And God's most pointed teachings about love, there are lots of them in the Old Testament, but there are just two big ones I want to introduce today. They're found in Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. We won't read them today, but so you know, they are, they are foundational commands in, in the Mosaic Covenant. And so God worked in the lives of his people through covenants. We are under the covenant of Jesus Christ right now until he returns. And part, part of understanding a covenant is understanding the terms of them. What God is saying is going to happen during this time. And so we see from the very nature of God's people becoming God's people, he is telling them that love is one of the greatest indications that they actually are his people. And this is shown in two great priorities. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy show us this, that their greatest... Your chief existence, if you will, in life is to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength, and then to love their neighbor as themselves. And there's obviously a gazillion ways that is expressed in life, but the root of all we are and do should be in a devout love to God and a devout love for other people. Now, Jesus further validates the central nature of love in the Christian faith and life in Matthew 22, and, when, and he gives us the great commandments. This is the New Testament version of these Old Testament teachings. In that passage, he says, listen, think about this. This is fascinating. The whole law, they want to know, like, what's the summation of the law? And he says, the whole law and the teachings and the prophets, everything that God has said, everything my father has said can be summed up, he says, by requoting what we just talked about briefly in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So think about that. You know, that lead weight called the Old Testament that you could break a window with, all that writing and teaching and truth. Jesus says those seemingly countless pages in the Old Testament, they all find their root in having a proper love for God and people. And so what he's saying is, is listen, if you miss this, then you miss God. If you start out with a faulty foundation, something other than this, then you start worshiping a God that actually isn't the God as he has revealed himself. And it doesn't end there. So in the New Testament, God's love was further revealed to us when Jesus became a man and dwelt among us. And so those Old Testament commandments about love, they're now given a face in God's Son. And God's people, that's us today, those of you in Jesus, we're given a glimpse of God's perfect love that God and Jesus shared with each other. We start seeing like, you know, love becomes flesh and we get to observe this and see who Jesus is. And when I say observe, I want to be very clear about something here, that 
oftentimes this is one of those ways we reduce God's, God's love. We kind of, we miss the grandiose idea of it always having been around. Is when we begin to say, well, Jesus was a great example of God's love. And we look at what he does and he says, you know, or we say, hey, if we just do that, or if we just, if we realize like, hey, serving the poor and caring for our neighbor, all important things, that just means that I love God. The truth is that Jesus was certainly an example of God's love. But to just see him as an example of God's love, uh, we, we create a cosmic mistake. And we're likely to have a love that you almost see it happening with the Pharisees. They, they kind of embrace the actions of God at times, but they don't necessarily have the root heart of what it means to truly love God. So mimicking love is not just what God wants for us. Experiencing it and reproducing it is what he desires for us. Because it's, it, you know, love is much, much, much deeper than just an example in Christ. So if you think about Jesus and, and the Father, we won't even touch the Holy Spirit today, but the, the love that they have for each other isn't just an example. It's meant to kind of set the standard to show humanity what the true meaning of love and devotion is for another person or to another person. So Jesus meant to show us that true love, pure love, genuine love stems from this eternal and unchanging nature of God. And you can really see this, this is the passage we're looking at today, in the the priority that he has in loving and caring for his disciples. Remember, we're hearing a teaching today, and Jesus is speaking to us. But before he was speaking to us, because we weren't around 2,000 years ago, he was speaking to his disciples. And so this passage, these words that he gives about a new command, love one another, all the craziness going on in their lives, is rooted in him loving people. And that care is the backdrop of why Jesus gives us this teaching in John 13. He's speaking to his disciples because, as you probably already deduced, he's pretty close to his crucifixion. He's starting to use this cryptic language that he's not going to be around, at least physically, with them anymore. And he's saying, listen, because I love you, I'm going to start preparing your hearts for what is next to come. I want you to understand the nature of who I am and the priorities of what I want you to be and what you're going to experience when I'm gone. Because I love you, I'm not going to leave you high and dry. And so think about this. The whole time he's with his disciples, right? Jesus is, he's with them. He is kind of doing life with them. We'll touch on this in a moment. He spends a great deal of time with them. He shows love to them. He helps them to experience God's love. He's correcting all the nature, the facets of love, right? Correcting out of love, disciplining out of love, loving out of love, caring out of love, empathizing out of love. It's not just, you know, flowers and Rolex watches. There's something serious about this, this diverse understanding of love, much more than gifts. And now just before his crucifixion, he says, listen, the culmination of everything I've done, the culmination of what you have experienced is love. And as I leave, uh, I have been a pillar of love to you, and I need you now to be a pillar of love in my absence. He sets them apart to be God's love in his absence. And that, that train of love, which we see the rumblings of in the first century world, is what it, this is the bridge to our church today, today and every other one in the world that, that worships Jesus. There's an old management proverb that sort of gets at the idea of what is happening here between Jesus and his disciples. And it talks about uh, how a person teaches another person how to do something. And it starts with, tell me. So we see this in the life of Jesus. He's, he's teaching them. Then it starts with, show me. Right. So Jesus is not just saying what love is. He's actually living in such a way that he's validating that. And then the key part, and this is where I think we often drop the ball in the Western world, is involve me. <laughs> tell me, show me, involve me. Jesus is at the place in his ministry now where he's focusing on the involved part. He's saying, you've been taught, you've been shown, now I invite you to be a part of what I've done. I, w- I want you to experience my love by, by obviously experiencing it, but also showing it to others. And this is kind of radical for the first century world, because up until now, I'm not saying the disciples weren't loving anybody, but up until now, the disciples had been mostly, mostly watching how Jesus loved people. They were in an observation mode. It was truly like rabbi and student. 
But this is about to change for them. And that's why this love teaching we're reading about on Valentine's Day is an important one to look at. Because if, if you want to consider it this way, love as we understand it, these verses in John 13, this is the beginning of the way God wants us to love. This is under our, our covenant, what he says here, the command is no different for us today. And it is the start of what we know as far as theologically speaking, Jesus' historical farewell address. Like, the end is near. And this begins a very important thing, a teaching that he gives his, his disciples before he goes to the cross. And it runs for four chapters. If you want to meditate on love this week, go ahead and read John 13 through John 17, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. He begins with this command, and it ends with this, this prayer where God sends us. Jesus prays for God to send us into the world that we would love and show the grace of his Father in heaven to others. So we start with the prayer, and then we get the action point. And in all of this, it's clear that Jesus knows his time on earth is short. Because in his words, there's this, this teaching echo that comes through. If you're familiar with kind of first century rhetoric, he's speaking to a group of people in a way that signifies he's like a dying leader. This is essentially like a last will and testament. And what would happen here is that the nature of what he's saying and how he's saying to them, prominent people in the ancient world, just before their death, they would gather their most faithful followers. They would identify them as successors. They would remind them of the most critical teachings necessary for them to carry on their mission. You can see this a lot in the business world today. When there's a succession, they kind of rally the troops, re-engage them, and send them on to their, their, their new battlefield, the new era. This is what's happening here, except it's happening in, in a very spiritual way. He gathers them, reminds them of their mission, and then gives them this final charge and blessing in John 17 to, to, to get the job done, to work in his absence. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's reminding them that, that the apex of everything he is, everything he has said, everything he has done, all the goodness and grace they have experienced is rooted in a love he has experienced from his father and a love that he has shown his followers. In other words, because he is, he is loved by God, he has loved others. And because he has loved others, he now says, look, if you've been loved by God, the responsibility for you now is to love others in the same way. That's what he's saying here. And it's pretty profound. What he's saying is, going back to that eternal nature thing, is my father is the root of all love. My father has always been. He's never not been. You have personally seen how my father loves and cares for me. You've seen me, you know, you see me grieving. You see me celebrating. You've seen what it means to love my dad. You've experienced my father through the love that I have shown you. It wasn't just a showing. It was an experiential love. Now he says, in my absence, I want you to know I'm leaving you a final command. This is our command. Love others in the same way. So what he's saying is, is you and I are now the father's love in the world until he returns. That's not saying God isn't working in the world, but the way he's working in the world is not disconnected from us. He's working in the world through us. So we are the pillars of love until Jesus comes back. And he says, when you do this... People will see and believe in your Father in heaven, just as you have seen him because you believe in me. It wasn't just enough to say it. They had to show it. And this, this idea of love being you know, an apex pillar of the Christian faith, it's important. And it leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. Because we've established today that God is love. Jesus tells us the, that love is the ultimate mark of a true follower of Jesus. In John thirteen thirty five, he he layers this teaching on. It's, you know, he, he explains to them about the new command that they've given, and then he explains the implication of what happens when they live in it. He says this, By this, the love of God in your life and the love you show others, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And notice it's 
Don't get me wrong. We value this here. It's not about like articulate uh, theological reasoning. It's not about us having a, you know, uh, an unhealthy boldness in the world. None of that is what Jesus is talking about here. What he says is, listen, your posture of love is how people will know that you are mine. And obviously talking about the gospel and defending it all are all part of love. That's there. But the root of how we do these things is rooted in love. And what's interesting here is that I want to I jump out of this for a moment and into culture today. Because at times, this love teaching is a place where Christians are unfairly judged. So if you're in here and you're in Jesus, I want to talk to you for a moment. Sometimes these, these things that Jesus says to us, people use them in unhealthy ways to, to be uh, kind of a reverse judgmentalism, if you will, towards the Christian. And so, for example, uh, in the early days of restoration, you know, we are a pretty community-oriented church. If you were here last week, you'll know I share with you just a little bit about what we did last year. It was pretty powerful. So not too, uh, a few years ago, we had a group of people uh, from our church that went and served our community at an event that was designed to help recovering addicts. And it was a, a large thing in Daytona. Lots of people from all over the place came to it. And uh, one of our people heard an interesting comment that a bystander made at the event. And they looked at the booth that we were doing, and they basically saw that we were a church, and they said, uh, keep in mind now, this is under the umbrella of us doing some pretty great and sacrificial things for our community in the name of Jesus. This person under their breath kind of mumbled that, uh, that they guessed they were wrong and that not all religious people were bad. Okay? And so I don't even like the word religious. It's actually a very healthy term, but it's a, it's a term today that is kind of polluted. And so religious, in the way we'll use it today, again, talks on this in the past, just talks about pure religion, true religion, the way that we love God the Father. Okay? But in our culture today, the word religious is not usually a healthy, a healthy term. And so that was clearly an offhanded comment uh, that, that tried to say something along the lines of, hey, there's a pretty strong stereotype that they had. All religious people are bad. That was kind of an offhanded way of insulting but also complimenting some of God's people. Uh, so the brawl broke out immediately. I'm just kidding. There was no fighting after that. <clears throat> Jesus is not known by our brawling, so we don't want to go that road. Um, that's what Benny is for. Give him seven bucks and he'll take care of the person by the booth. Uh, <clears throat> that's not a good thing. But, and, and I don't want to talk about the person as much as I want to do the stereotype that the person revealed because it's really unfair on a number of levels. And I'll share with you two big ones. I mean, we could kind of reason through this all morning, but here's two stellar reasons why this kind of a statement is unfair. The first is that it takes this word religious, which is a pretty broad term, and it lumps all of us, no matter who you are or where you're coming from in life, into one big category. And that is just not right. Because if you think about it, it takes, like a talk like today, it takes a a true disciple of Christ who is trying to love Jesus and care for others, and it, it puts us on the same level as you know, some of the cults of the world or the crazy splinter sects of the world, or I don't know, maybe you have some like crazy isolationist neighbor um, who has locked himself in a home and claims to be Christian. He's, there's a portrayal of Christianity that's really not a good one. That person is now on the same level as you, right? They, they don't necessarily have anything to do with the Christian God at all, yet they're kind of married to us. It's like an apple and an orange comparison. And the reason that stereotype is unfair, and I would go so far as to say, in a gently, gentle way, it's, it's uninformed, is because it's too general, and it creates an unfair comparison. And so if you start listening, you'll often find that a great many people who reject or object to the Christian faith, they often defend their objectives, objections by using this all-Christians or all-religious-people generalization. It's a tactic of sorts that it's, it's almost like it convolutes the conversation so substantially that you, can't, you don't even have anything to talk about. If you're talking about everything, you're really talking about nothing. That's at least my motto. And so perhaps the greatest uh, practical evidence of what we're talking about here is that our church culture doesn't really fit into that all-religious people statement. We're not perfect, but we don't, we're not defined by that. So already we, we're at odds, okay? 
And so what I love about looking up at a stereotype like this is that the person who makes that statement, actually at that event, they just proved Jesus' love point. Think about this. It wasn't our church's ability to defend the teachings of the gospel in a super articulate way at that moment that caused that person um, to question their belief about Christians, and that's what that was. Whether they are aware of it or not, they just had their, they had their world rocked in a little bit. They saw a group of people from a church, and they saw something different about a group of people from a church, and it was enough to shift the, the it, it altered the meter just a little bit, right? It was the fact that people were loving other people in Jesus' name that caused them to question that belief. And so to me, that's a great evidence of what we're talking about here. It makes perfect sense, because Jesus just told us, people will know we belong to him when we show others his love. And those small, that was a very small thing. Sometimes the issues are bigger, but they're like little glimpses of love and light popping out of our bodies when we live like this. And God in his grace has the ability to use this to help people see him. Maybe not see him to the way we do if you've been in Jesus for a while, or maybe it's just that they help him, help people to start seeing him, okay? So this is an unfair generalization. Uh, And it, it does, though, cause us to think a little bit about who we are and how we act and how we behave. That's a big deal for the Christian. Because you can see that people, they have assumptions sometimes about who we are even before they know us. Secondly, the other, the other problem with this is that it seems to imply, and, and maybe that's too gentle, actually does imply that just because you are religious, you just won't be a loving person. Like, to be religious means you're just going to be a, a bad person. And I could be wrong here, uh, but the last time I checked, our streets were filled with people uh, with no religious connection at all the, that are capable of you know, portraying a loveless and calloused attitude towards other people. Just drive on 95, you'll... You'll figure it out right when you put your blinker on, right? That's how that works. You're like, I want to show you that I love you by telling you I'm changing lanes, and they run you off the road. Peace be with you. So lovelessness, right, is not a religious issue or just a religious issue. It is a people issue, and anyone can suffer from it. So to only give a religious person first place at the Lovelessness Awards is a little bit ridiculous. And what is worse is that, if you do your homework, if you have any kind of a bearing on the history of the Christian faith, is that you will see past, present, and I'll guarantee future, based on the past pedigree of God's people, is that it is not nearly as true as we are often led to believe. For example, if you start looking at the, the, the history of the Christian church, you will find there's a strong presence of them being in places that are not necessarily desirable, places where great sacrifice is necessary. I shared with you a few weeks ago the story of... Um, William Carey and his amazing work in India, right? These are people giving up great amounts of freedom and liberty and finances to be in places of the world, sometimes up the street, sometimes across the globe, to serve others in the name of Jesus. And if you, even if you look at our, current, our, our, our country currently, wherever there are major crises in our country, you will find that one of the first and almost always most generous responses to these disasters comes from people that follow God. They come from local churches, raising money and sending people to, to help wherever it is, it is needed, right? or sometimes where it's permitted. And I saw this firsthand. Most of you know I, I lived for about 12 years in, or 11 years in New Orleans. And we, my wife and I saw this firsthand in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. We were there four years after the hurricane. But I can tell you the first people on the scene were, uh, were churches, national churches, invaded that place because they're not tethered by the bureaucracy of the strings. They can rally up people, send people in money. And it was amazing watching for years them alleviate suffering and pain. I mean, we knew people that were using their vacation time to love and serve the people of a city that was ravaged. And for years, one of the largest disaster relief groups that came into the city wasn't FEMA. It was a broad coalition of Christian denominations and churches uh, sending workers' material and money. Now, on the contrary, think about this. I want to know, whatever your preferred news agency is, like when you've seen, like in other news, a hurricane, you know, uh, ravaged a certain area and 
busloads of atheists have migrated across the country into the place, you know, to just tell them how you're, this is a natural result of the fact that you have no value or meaning in life, and sorry, it's a, you know, you, have you ever seen that happening? No. So to me, there's a real contradiction here. No offense to the atheists, we love them, we talk about them a good bit. I have two atheist heroes in my life, not because of what they believe, but because of the consistency in what they say. But <clears throat> atheists are not known for that. So here's, here's what I want to say here, is that this type of behavior of loving and serving others is more common in the Christian community than sometimes we're led to believe. And you'll find an evidence of it in just about every area of the world. Okay? On the contrary, though, I want you to hear me here. I'm not saying there aren't people who in the name of Christ or God function without the love of Christ or God in their lives. That's, that's possible and that's out there. There's no denying that. I'm just saying if you've come to this place believing that this is how all Christians are or you know somebody who believes this way, at the very least, it's worth taking a moment um, to, to take into account the stuff that we've talked about today before you make a true decision or a final decision, a conclusive decision on the nature of all religious people, especially those who are trying to let Jesus' love define them in the way that they love others, okay? So show yourself some grace here, experience some grace, and know that there's a better story here than that is often told. But nonetheless, there are, and this is how we'll wrap up today, there are some evidences that Jesus' love is in your life. And this is certainly not an exhaustive list, but there are two based on what he tells us here that I want to bring up. So according to Jesus, the evidence of his love in your life, it has two dimensions to it. It is like one coin with two sides. The first evidence of Jesus' love in your life is when you desire to love other Christians in the same way that Jesus first loved you. This is the idea behind what he says in the Gospel of John. It is what he literally says in John 4, 19. He says, the reason you should be compelled to love others is because you have first been loved by me. Not even an obligation. It should be like a healthy compulsion. And we, we know that he's saying this here. We know this to be true because of the words that Jesus uses. This idea of loving one another. They are found throughout the whole Bible. I have talked about them here in great detail in the past. We won't do that today. But they make up this, this kind of belief that we have at our church called the one another's. It's almost a doctrine, if you will, that defines who we are. And whenever you are reading Scripture, it expresses itself in our fourth value, authenticity and relationship or authentic community. But that's taken from this idea that Jesus talks about here. So when you're reading Scripture and you see these words, one another, here with Jesus, what you have to do is prepare your heart to receive something that God wants to show you about the way he wants you to care for other people. A lot of times he's referring to our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Now, the reason the Bible places such an emphasis on the way Christians are supposed to love one another is because as Christians, uh, we share this special and unique love. It's a a love that's kind of birthed in Jesus and held together by Jesus. And it is a love that is meant to broadcast the deep and profound love that God has for the people of the world. And so remember, this is what Jesus just said. Our love for each other, this was the nature of that song. Our love for each other is supposed to be a direct reflection of God's love for us. That's why ideas like unity are so strong in the scripture, because they are a reflection of who God is. And this is why we place such a high value on you know, I'll just say it, the doctrine of the church at Restoration. It's what we call an ecclesiology in, the, in theological circles. The time that we spend with each other in this place. The time that we spend caring for each other and laboring for Jesus' love outside of this place in the world. It's truly a special bond, and it is one that is often neglected. God deeply desires that we gather together, that we worship him here, that we live life together outside of this place, that we are on mission here and everywhere we go. Because that unity and that love, that common purpose, reveals God's love to our world. And a great case in point, jumping back to that illustration I gave you at that event, 
our presence at that recovery event that I just spoke about revealed something about God to somebody who was very far from God. It was, it was you know, uh, proactive love that gave a message to somebody who, at least at that point, I don't know where they're at now, was not worshiping with us here. Now, <clears throat> this mark of love Jesus talks about is why Scripture repeatedly tells us to not treat, treat the church family lightly. It wasn't ever meant to be, an, to be optional or something that you get around to or a place to come and go or a place to kind of create your own terms instead of the Lord's terms. When you treat the church family like that, you really begin to damage your walk with God. You're starting to understand who God is in a way that's a little off kilter. And the relationship that you have with other people is likely to get off kilter too. You, you, you will likely have some kind of an off kilter philosophy of how you both give and receive from your Christian family. And that's right, I used the word family. I know that's a hokey word today, but it's probably more in line with how Jesus intended the church to be than oftentimes what we see expressions of the churches of churches being today. Because that's what Jesus said we are. We're not a corporation, we're not an entity. We have to have these kind of designations for the state. But we are a family, is what the church is what Jesus says. And we are to treat and love one another like a family, right? As God first loved us. And so inherent in Jesus' words is this idea that our churches, these local families, are filled, think about this, with spiritual moms and dads, spiritual grandparents, spiritual brothers and sisters, spiritual children. And if you think about the biological nature of family in, in a healthy world now, you look up to your grandparents, you love them, you cherish the time you have with them while they're here. You know, through the teen years with your parents, it gets a little rough. But after that, you start loving your dad again. That's the way that it works. Aiden's 10. I'm going through this right now, right? So you, you have these designations of how you care and invest and you're pouring into people and people are pouring into you. This is the idea of what Jesus says the church should be. And so you should naturally want to love and care for those people And sometimes this is the harder thing for some of us. Be loved and cared for by those people. Sometimes we do great at giving, but we're not great at receiving. So no matter what side of the fence you're on, if you're you're not doing that, if you're not seeing love in the church family, loving one another, like Jesus says, you're not loving God in the way that, that he has intended. I'm not saying you're not loving God. I'm just saying the prisms turned a little bit and we might have a skewed understanding of the light of God. And you start selling yourself short on the true connection that Jesus wants you to have with him and his people. So simply put, Jesus' deep love for us reminds us that we should want to love one another because of the bond we all share. One of the evidences of God's love is that we have a profound love for the people of God. That's an important thing to know. It is a command in Scripture, the, the command to love one another. But the last thing we'll say today is that you have to know, as important as that command is, as important as this teaching is, that does not mean that Jesus is saying you are not supposed to love people outside of the fold. It doesn't mean that it's, it's, a, it's a one-sided command. The command to love knows no boundaries. It's given to us specifically here for God's people, but it is not limited to God's people because love is a mark of a Christian, which means we can't be preferential in the way we show it. We have to show it wherever the opportunity presents itself. And so the second evidence of Jesus' love in your life is when you desire to love people who are very far from God. These are people that are not like you. They don't look like you. They don't act like you. They don't think like you. Who knows? Maybe spiritually, morally, they're on different planets. We're not exempted from loving and caring and serving people that think differently from us. And sadly, in today's world, this is cyclical, so I say this with a very lighthearted kind of, in lighthearted way, you know, bashing the Christian culture is kind of in again. That's coming back around. This is even true amongst some people of the church, and this is where it gets sad for me. Uh, and I'll give you a good example of this. Uh, years ago, I heard a talk from a pastor who was talking about love. 
and it was a sermon in the context of, of mission. And he, was, he, he said something that was a little bit concerning to me, but reflected, I think, a very common way of thinking that has unfortunately gained some traction in the Christian community. And his sermon was talking about reaching people far from God. And in the course of his sermon, in, in what I would have considered a rather je- uh, rough way, he, he said something along these lines that, listen, at our church, we're all about, you know, helping people find God. We're all about, to use that word, like getting people saved. I don't care for that word, but that's a word that he used. And he said, but you need to know, like, once you get saved, like, once you come to Jesus, it's not, it's not about you anymore. And it seemed to be what I thought was a spiritual bait and switch. It was like saying, like, listen, if you're not a Christian, we are all about loving you. But once you are a Christian, we are not all about loving you. It ain't about you anymore. And I think that could be, like, that, that could create a worldview in somebody that might be a little bit different. Like they might say, well, isn't it about love, but you don't love? Uh, you know, you see where that goes, right? So I want to be fair here. There is some truth to that. Uh, in its healthiest sense, I think that statement was expressing that as we find Jesus, our lives should continually look more like him, which means selfless love should be more a part of who we are. But it was very clear that this was kind of an either or. And I am not comfortable with that kind of a statement because I don't think Jesus is. This kind of belief is at odds with what Jesus just said. And when you start categorizing love like this, like we're all for Christians or not for Christians or vice versa, we start to create extremes of love and extremes lead to isms and isms lead to problems. When you overcorrect and create a reactionary extreme, doesn't matter what extreme it is or what, what spectrum it is in the Christian faith, right? Legalism and permissibility, here we're talking about love or not loving. Whenever you overcorrect, you create extremes and extremes never represent God well. So the truth is, some people, some churches do a great job. This is an action point for us today. We do a great job of caring for our own. We love the people of God deeply, but not necessarily the people that are far from God or the other way around. Maybe we're all about caring for the, the hurt and the marginalized, those that are not a part of God's family, but, but we have a disdain for the people of God, that Gandhi quote I gave us a while ago, right? Both extremes are totally out of bounds when it comes to how God calls us to love others. And as Christians, we are called to deeply love each other and celebrate the body of Christ while simultaneously letting that love spill into other people's lives. You are planted in a place to show light. So wherever that is, your schools, your workplaces, your neighborhoods, uh, your, your, your jobs, your cubicles, your work sites, your social circles, none of these are meant to be exempted from, from the double duty of love that God gives us, to love his people and to love others that are not his people. And I want you to think of it like this. Um, I had a super good friend growing up. I, I actually, it's kind of ironic, I met him in Florida, and he was uh, also a kid that, uh, he was from Queens, and we, we got to become very good friends. And um, we... We really had a good friendship with each other, but the friendship got more deep when we got to know each other's families because we were adopted like surrogate sons. We were like another brother in the household. And it was amazing. I didn't, I didn't interpret it this way then, but now seeing as Jesus does, I see it this way. Uh, you know, I'd get excited when I'd get invited over, over for dinner or like when he would come over, my mother would like, she'd pull out all the shelves in the refrigerator and put everything on there, just start cooking for him. And it was like having another brother. And it was this great environment where we started recognizing we were good friends, but we were also cherished by another family. And so we got excited about like hanging out, spending the night, goofing off. And, and it, it, I loved hanging out with my friend, but I also loved the fact that there was access to something a little deeper than just my friend. My friend was the gateway to a loving family. And that person's individual love is kind of what drew me to a deeper love for the family and it eventually anchored me in it. And I think the same is true in the church. Our individual care for people is meant to be a gateway into the larger body of Jesus. That's the bullseye for the way God calls us to live, right? Especially for people who don't know God. Our love for each other becomes a contagion that leads others to God's love. 
Now, I'm going to be super brief here because we're about to take communion. But in your seats, you're going to find, if you've been with us for a while, you'll know what these are. If not, there's a card. Uh, it's a black card, and it has the word bless on it. And bless cards, we use at our church. They're, they're an intentional tool we give you to start thinking and praying through people in your life who, who you can love. That's as far as I'll go. People who you can serve and care for. And so I want you to take that right now, stick it in your pocket, maybe use it during response time. But we're going to start visiting this in the weeks and months that follow. Every one of you has somebody in your life right now that God wants you to care for. Um, and I would like you to be aware of that. I know many of you are, but maybe look at that list. And if right now you've just mentally filled the list up, start writing that down. If you're looking at that list and you're like, I don't think I know anybody, that's okay. This is, let God's grace kind of show you that. Let, let him lead you to the place where you know that he has a purpose for your life. But nonetheless, I'd like you to take that card. And on it is an acronym that helps you to understand how to, how to care for people like Jesus did. You begin with prayer. You listen to their needs, eat with them, hang out with them, spend time with them, serve them, and just share your story when God leads. No pressure, no, no gimmicks, just genuinely love others like Jesus did. So stick that in your pocket. I've already done a head count. I know how many of you are out here, and I know where the cards are or are not, so don't mess this up, okay? <clears throat> Bless somebody today. Now, as we move towards communion in a very fitting way, in a day we talk about love, and you're being charged to love others, remember, Jesus sets the precedent for this teaching about loving others because he first loved us. The table is an evidence of the love of God. His love is marked by uh, humble service to others, compassionate forgiveness, generously giving himself away, sacrificially to the point of, of death on a cross, which we will get to in the book of Philippians, my favorite verse in the whole book. Now, this morning, we've talked about a lot of things. We've engaged love from God's perspective. We've talked about the challenges we as Christians might have with it, the, the, uh, the opposition sometimes we might see trying to show it in culture. We've talked about some very important things. But I want you to reflect on just one this morning as you have our, your response time after communion. I want you to ask yourself this. Is your life marked with the same type of love that Jesus had in his own? Maybe you have an answer, maybe you don't. Wherever you end up, just let God take you to the place he wants you to be. Ask yourself, when it comes to God's love in your life, what is he saying to you about the way that you have answered that question? When it comes to the way you're showing it to others, what is he saying to you about the way that you've answered that question? And then what do you intend to do about it? Because remember, true to form with the many facets of love, it is not just a feeling or an emotion, it is also a verb. And it requires action at seasons and places in life. And so if you would, um, in a moment... We're going to pray, and I'd like to start shifting your attention now from reception, which is what we've been doing this morning, to contribution. <clears throat> um, if you are visiting with us, we usually have a contemplative re- uh, kind of response time at the end of our service each week. And on Communion Sundays, this, this is the contemplation point. And so I want to share with you very quickly what our discipleship pathway is, what we really feel are important next steps for you to take with Jesus. They revolve around four words, connecting, growing, serving, and giving. And so today, as you think about what we've talked about and we bridge to the table, ask yourself, are you, are you connected to Jesus? Um, if you're hearing about God's love, but you are without it, ask yourself why. And by connecting, I also want to challenge you uh, to see whether or not you're, you're growing in it. And so I really want to encourage you. There's lots of good things going on in our church, especially social stuff right now, stuff with students and, uh, and men and women and, and community groups. Um, 
get on our Facebook page, like us, get connected to this stuff. If you want to know about the future of our church and places you can plug in to connect to Jesus and grow in him, that information is available. So take a moment to like us on Facebook or really to, uh, to look at Facebook as a tool to get you understanding what's going on in the future because your growth in Jesus is deeply connected, uh, no pun intended, to your connection to his heart. Okay? If you're looking to plug into a church family, we certainly would love to help you get to the place where you're going and where God wants you. And if that's this place, we're here to help you figure that out. Connecting in Jesus, growing in Jesus, and uh, serving Jesus. Serving Jesus, this has kind of been a theme of the, mor- of the morning this morning. There are opportunities for you to serve Jesus in this place. We still have a handful of needs and kids. There are other places, too, to serve the people of God on the days that we worship. I promise if you have an ability, we can find a place, or just a desire, we can find a place to plug you in. But I also don't want you to disconnect service from the way that God has uh, pre- provided opportunities for you outside of this place. So if you're trying to figure out how to bless somebody, and you just need to talk to somebody about that, uh, we're here. Our leadership is available to you to help you figure that out, okay? But make sure your life is marked by service. And lastly, this is the place where we give. We give back of our lives, of our time, of our talents, and our treasures. And so when you think about what we have received this morning, reception from God should always lead to contribution for him. If you're a gospel partner here, you and I know that we have a specific responsibility to support the mission and the ministry of our church through our tithes and our offerings. If you are visiting, we simply ask that you do as the Lord leads. After communion uh, and our benediction, you can take those cards, any questions you might have, your gifts, you can place them in these giving uh, towers here, and uh, we'll process them this week. But for now, I'd like you to pray with me, and if you would, then focus your attention to, uh, to the communion table.